We're in a series of lessons called Discovering the Mission of God, broken up into four sections, Israel, Jesus, the Gospel, and finally discipleship, where we're kind of going to focus our attention later in the year. But last week, we, we came to a very important topic, and I know because of the fact that we were online, uh, I'm sure some of you did not catch it, and so I wanted to kind of bring you up to date. Our first lesson this year had to do with why God created us, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The second lesson looked at the fall, looked at Adam and Eve and, and the consequences of eating of the forbidden fruit. And then last week, we moved to Genesis chapters 4 through 11. And I used as kind of a topic a statement by Martin Luther King. Last Monday, of course, was Martin Luther King Day, and, and in, in the 19, early 1960s, I think it was 1963, Martin Luther King wrote a letter while in jail in Birmingham, Alabama. And it was a letter which basically explained why he was trying to promote this peaceful uh, uh, march against you know, the injustice, the racial injustice, the uh, social injustice that was going on in the South at that time. And one of the things he does in his letter from the Birmingham jail is he compares the book of Acts and what Christians were doing as they would go into cities throughout the Roman Empire with what was going on at that time in, in, in America. And one of the comments he made as he kind of brought that comparison to the end is he said things are different now. And as I was reading that in that particular letter, I thought, boy, that describes the beginning chapters of Genesis. And so I used that phrase to talk about how that things are different now. You begin with the eating of the forbidden fruit there in Genesis chapter 3. And that sin very quickly leads, of course, to Cain killing Abel. The first murder, the first suicide. That, that word fratricide means the killing of one's brother. You know, if you go to college, if you're a guy, you may join a fraternity, a brotherhood of fellow students. And so Cain kills his brother Abel. Then later on in chapter 4, you have another interesting story, the story of Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, who not only kills a man for wounding him, but says, if Cain is avenged seven times, I'll be avenged 77. Some translation says 70 times 7. And so you end up with this vengeance in the world. Then you turn over to the next chapter and you have the descendants of Seth. And one of the things I think we sometimes miss is right in the middle of these descendants of Seth, you come to Enoch. And a lot of us remember Enoch because he's one of two men who never died. But what we don't stop to ask is why did God take him off the earth? He lived to be 365 years old, and then he was not because God had taken him. And you know, Isaiah reminds us that sometimes God takes the righteous so they don't have to put up with the wickedness in this world. And I can't help but think that that's exactly what's going on with Enoch. God is pulling him out because the world's becoming so evil. Genesis chapter 6, one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Genesis, because you have this strange story of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. And while there are different interpretations to it, 
I'm of, of the opinion that it's talking about literally angelic beings looking upon women, lusting after them, and for the first time, heaven is invaded by sin. And I know there are good scholars that disagree with me on that. But I think that's part of that fall that even angels experience. You read that over in the book of Jude. And then you have in Genesis 6 this incredible description by God. As he looks at the world he had created and what had become of it, his description is every inclination and thought of the human heart is evil all the time. And the result of that was God sent the flood. God's like, I'm going to destroy man. And with the exception of Noah he, and his family, he destroyed everything. And he started over. But what's fascinating is that in the start over, things are not different now. I mean, that's one of the things that's so odd. As Noah and them are coming out of the ark, God recognizes that they're thinking still evil. I mean, even this family that we so oftentimes think of righteous... You know, as it begins to have children, it's right back to every thought and imagination is still evil from childhood. And the end result is that God is now nowhere to be found. You get to chapter 11, you got this really strange story, the Tower of Babel. And, and God had told Noah and his boys, I want you to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, be scattered upon the earth. But you get to chapter 11, and the descendants of Noah says, No, we're not going to be scattered on the earth. We're going to stay right here, and we're going to build a tower as part of our city. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And then notice there, otherwise we will be scattered. The very thing God had told them to do. And of course, if you know anything about the story of Babel, you know that God came down and said, All right, you won't scatter yourselves, I'll scatter you. And therefore, we have all the languages that we have upon the earth. And as chapter 11 ends, we have a new line that begins. You had, you had Adam, you had the line of Seth, you had the line of Cain. Now we have the line of Terah. And, and Terah is introduced for an important reason. Notice here, after Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram. Abram, or as we call him, Abraham. Now, there's something about the introduction of Abram at this point that you need to realize. It's, it's not told in Genesis. You've got to go over to Joshua to pick it up. But Joshua would say to the Israelites as they were coming back into the land of, of uh, Canaan, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. Interesting little side note. Tyre is already an idolater. I mean, it didn't take long at all before the world is right back where it was before the flood came. And Tyre is among them. And chapter 11 ends in a fascinating way. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. Now, Sarah was childless. Don't miss that. She's childless because she was not able to conceive. It's right here where... Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, says something I think that's so good. He says, the call of Abram is the beginning of God's answer to evil. 
of the human heart, the strife of nations, the groaning brokenness of the whole creation. In other words, God looks at the world he had made and he's like, how in the world am I going to set it right? And he looks at an older couple and, 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 and the wife cannot even have children. She's barren. And God says, I'll start right there. I mean, you, you're talking about, I, I love Dallas Willard's expression of God's grand plan. He called it the divine conspiracy. And that's exactly what you have going on here. Is God saying, I'm going to start again, and here's who I'm going to start with. And so you turn to Genesis chapter 12, and God speaks again. I think sometimes we miss that. You know, Genesis 1 verse 2, and God said, let there be light. And all at once creation sprung to life. God looks at Abraham, and he says something. And God said again. And, and so I think sometimes we just kind of miss that. But you have God speaking here and God speaking here. And each time, creation, in this latter case, new creation, comes into being. Now, what's interesting is, is that as he speaks to Abram, you've got three very short verses. Yet, so much of the Bible hinges on these three verses. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And in these three verses, there are two commands, two imperatives, where God tells Abram to do something. And boy, as I was looking at those, I'm like, man, those are two commands I desperately, I think we desperately need to hear. Notice the first one up there. And the Lord God, uh, God said to Abram, go. I thought about all the different ways to translate that. And when you look at the other translations, it's get out, go away, leave, depart, get going. And I love the voice. Voice is one of my favorite translations in, in a lot of different instances. It says, get up and go. Kind of reminds me of my mom when I was a kid. Get up and go. And, and you see God saying to Abram, I've got a task for you to do. Notice what he says. Go from your father, excuse me, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I'll show you. And it's important that we don't read too fast here. I mean, when you begin to look, you see a pattern that Moses is trying to communicate of God's call to Abram. Why? Why go from Babel? And I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Corinthians, but don't be so naive, again, from the voice. There's another saying, you know well, bad company corrupts good habits. The first thing God does to Abram, he says, you've got to get out of where you are. Babel's not the place where I'm going to begin this journey. And so you need to leave. You need to leave the country, the people. You need to leave your father's family. One of the things that I do is I work in prison ministry. Uh, Jeff Castle's back here. Jeff is part of T-Palm, Tennessee Prison Outreach. Jeff, thank you for that service. Appreciate it so much. But one of the things we've discovered in working with inmates getting out of jails and prisons is that if you're not careful, they'll find themselves within a couple of years right back in prison or jail. And so the challenge is, how do you keep them from coming back into the system? And the answer is, you've got to make sure they don't go back into the culture they came out of. You see, you take someone who's been in jail for three or four years, let them out, and they go back to the old neighborhood, guess what? They're going to come right back in. 
And so what we've discovered in prison ministry is that if someone's from Memphis, when they get out, take them to Nashville. If they're in Chattanooga, take them to a halfway house in Knoxville. You've got to take them out of the culture that put them where they're at. And the way you do that is by taking them and putting them in a different place. And that's exactly what God did to Abraham. Look at his call to leave. You need to leave your country. You need to leave that Babylonian culture. Your father, for heaven's sakes, is an idolater. You've got to get out of there. He does. In Titus, it's fascinating how God sometimes looks at a culture of people. And he says, that culture is bad. Paul, in writing to Titus, he had left Titus on the island of Crete. But boy, he writes to him, and you're talking about blunt. One of Crete's own prophets has says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Boy, you read that and you're like, Paul, don't hold anything back. You know, whoo. I mean, you don't talk about a description. And then look at what Paul says. This saying is true. And so he says to Titus, you rebuke them sharply. I mean, usually Paul's words are, be gentle. Be gentle. Be careful. Not here. Paul says, you let them have it. And, and, of course, the point is so that they will be sound in the faith. Sometimes a culture is so bad, you've got to take strong measures. Well, in the case of Abram, the strong measure is you get out. You leave that culture. You leave the community. I mean, let's face it. It's those ties in the community that oftentimes pull us down. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, obviously I didn't grow up in Hendersonville. I grew up in North Mississippi. And, and when I was, you know, uh, 18 years old, it was time to leave. Of course, I wanted to go in ministry, and I knew I wouldn't be able to stay there. But I look back, and I think about all the ties that are there. And, and I've got to tell you that occasionally I'll say to June, have you ever thought about maybe after we retire moving back to Mississippi? And June's response always is, it'll cost you more, I promise you, hiring a divorce lawyer than it will for you to move back to Mississippi. And I go... I understand, you know, that, that community is just not where June wants to go. And we see this all the time, people who are moving to Hendersonville. Why? Because they've grown up in communities that they're like, we want our family out of this community, and they like what they find here in Middle Tennessee. And then, of course, you've got to get away from your family. Families are probably the hardest ones to break away from. Families are our closest ties. You know, if people were to say to you outside June, you know, who are you closest to? Well, I'd be closest to my sons and my daughter-in-laws, my grandchildren, and then it'd be my brother and my sister. It's always family. And yet the problem is sometimes family is not helpful. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that sometimes you've got, you've got to decide between family and God. Some of the toughest language in Scripture is this. Anyone who loves their father, mother, notice that, son or daughter, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. And I've seen that in relationships. You've seen it in relationships. People who have put loyalty to their mom or dad or, or maybe to their kids over their loyalty to God. In, in Luke's gospel, Jesus even says in a harder way, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother 
And of course, he doesn't mean that literally. He's using hyperbole here. But his point is simply this. Are you willing to love me above that family? Which was exactly the question he asked Abram. Can I ask you a question? If right now you had to be honest and ask that, answer that question. Jesus, more than your spouse, more than your parents, and of course you're thinking, don't say my kids. I know. I mean, do we love God supremely? Which is going to be the big question for Abram. How much do you love me? I, I called Brian up last week and I said, Brian... What is it that keeps people in these unhealthy family relationships? And Brian sees it all the time. I mean, people in toxic relationships, and you think, why do they stay there? I mean, why in the world would you put yourself through that? And one of the things Brian told me that I appreciate so much is, he said, people tend to put trust in people who they think they know, but who are actually unworthy of that trust. Which, by the way, is what the whole story of Abraham is going to be. Can Abraham trust the God who told him to get out? And you're going to see him as he tries to figure out, can I trust God? And what's fascinating is, early on, the answer is no. But then by the time you get to the end, the answer is a resounding yes. He goes on and he says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great. And you see that occurring, like I said, later on in chapter 12. He goes down to Egypt because of a famine. And I don't know if you remember what happens when he gets down to Egypt, but he goes down there, he looks at Sarah. Sarah's a beautiful woman, and he's like, man, they're going to kill me for sure and take her. And so he says to her, tell them you're my sister. And Abram does that. Now, in one sense, that's true. They are half-brother and sister, you know. I've oftentimes said they're either from Babel or they're from Mississippi, one or the other, you know. I mean, they're related. And back then, you, you could marry in the family. But they are half-brother and sister. But Abram intentionally deceives Pharaoh. And, of course, Pharaoh takes her, and as a result, Abram, boy, just comes out wealthy as can be. But then God steps in and begins to uh, uh, punish Pharaoh for what he's done. And Pharaoh's like, Abram, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And so here's Abram, and Abram's just not quite sure yet he can trust the promise of God. But God assures him that he can by saying, I'm going to bless you. And he does. And he comes out an incredibly wealthy man. You go on further in the story. Abram goes through the whole issue of the kings that come in. They attack Sodom and Gomorrah. They kidnap Lot and his family. Abram comes to the rescue only to realize, oh no, have I endangered my whole family by getting involved in a literally physical altercation with these other people? And God steps in once again to reassure him. After this, after all of these incidents that have taken place, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield, your very great reward. And of course, Abram responds again because even though God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, here he is just getting older and older and older, and God's not doing anything. 
And so he responds, honestly, I love how he responds to God. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? I mean, of all the stuff you've given me, yes, wealth, thank you. But no child. And, and, and I, I, I love so much what Paul said during contribution. Paul, we can't take it with us. And Abram says here, and he says, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household. He's the one that's going to get it all. And then God tells him, I want you to go outside. I want you to look up in the sky. And he looks at the stars. I can't tell you how many times I've done this. And it's incredibly emotional for me. It, it, it goes back to a very difficult point in my life when for the first time I realized, you know what, I'm going to die one of these days. And I remember going out and looking up into the sky at night and seeing all the stars up there and remembering what God said to Abram. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And what was Abram's response to that? Believe God. Put his trust in God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. And you get toward the end of Abram's life and God comes to him after Isaac is born. And he says, now... I want you to take your son, your only son, go to a mountain, I'll tell you, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And now Abraham has got to make a decision. Will he trust God? And in the story, of course, as he's raising the knife to kill his son, an angel intervenes and God speaks to him. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And, and I don't know about you, but I read that passage and I go, now I know? God, you always knew. He did. You see, if I was retranslating this, if, if God would let me retranslate it, I would say, do not do anything to him. Now you know. Because this wasn't for God. This was for Abraham. This was to reassure Abraham that he'd finally got to the point, as Jesus said, that he loved God more than this child, his only child. He wasn't even afraid to offer him if God told him to do so. And you see that remarkable faith that has finally gotten to a level of maturity. And by the way, faith is always a work in progress. I don't know how often you struggle with your faith. I struggle quite often. There are times when I look at my life and I think, God, I don't know how you can even use someone like me. And it's not that I don't believe in God. It's just sometimes I just don't believe enough in God. And yet the story of Abraham is a story that, uh, of the fact that God's like, as long as you believe in me a little bit, I can still work with you. He says, you're going to have a great name. And here we are 4,000 years later. We still refer to Abraham. But not only that, but I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and here's where I want us to just pause for a moment to realize that that great nation is not Israel over in the Middle East right now. That great nation is us. We're the people of God. Galatians 3, 7, understand that those who have faith like we have, we're the children of Abraham. Or as Peter would describe, we're the holy nation. I think sometimes we don't realize that of all the nations of the earth, the greatest are the people of God, the church of our Lord, because that nation encompasses the entire world. 
every culture, every language, every tribe, every people, they're a part of that nation. And then he says to him the second time. This is the second command, the second imperative. And be thou a blessing. Rodney, I hope I got that right as I was looking at that text. I mean, I analyzed it. I'm not... I'm not good in Hebrew at all, but, but there's two imperatives there. Now, most of the translations don't translate this last one as an imperative. I had to go back, Rodney, to the old American standard to get it there. And be thou a blessing. A command. Be a blessing to the world. And the point simply being is that God says, for those who follow me, I will bless so that they in turn can bless others. And you see that all the way through the New Testament. Freely you've received then freely give. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, as God has comforted you, now you take that same comfort and comfort others. Paul would also say in Colossians, you forgive in proportion to how you've been forgiven by God. And one time in the Gospels when someone doesn't do that, you see this incredible condemnation by Jesus. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In other words, when God has blessed us and we don't in turn become a blessing, God is not pleased. So how did Abraham become a blessing? That's what's so fascinating to me. I mean, when you, when you ask that question, how did he become this man known as a friend of God? And the answer is incredibly simple, and that is he allowed God simply to work through him. I want you to think about this for a moment. What was it that Abraham did? How was it that Abraham blessed the whole world? We're here today because of Abraham. What did he do? And here's the answer to the question. So from this man who was almost at death's door, God brought forth descendants like the stars of the sky and the sands of the shore. God comes to Abraham. He falls down in front of him. God says to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. And no longer will your name be Abram, exalted father, but now your name will be Abraham, father of many nations. And I love the way the story develops. Abram's response is a very simple response. He fell down and he laughed. Now, he wasn't laughing in, unfaith, in unbelief. He's laughing in that God is finally now acting. And look at what he said as he's laughing. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? And then, will Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? Really? And you can just imagine that. I love what Sarah does. Sarah laughs as well over in chapter 18. And God's response is, why, do you, why did you laugh? And Sarah lies and says, I didn't laugh. And by the way, can I just give us all a word of advice? Don't lie to God. I'm pretty sure he knows the right answer. And by the way, God's blessing and punishment, blessing to Abram, punishment to Sarai, was you got to name your son Isaac laughter. That's what Isaac means. Laughter. Because you laughed. Can you imagine Sarah showing up at Babes or Us? Walks in. Where, where's the uh, 
where's the diapers? They're over there. You know, where, where's the wipes? They're over there. I, I need, you know, and she picks up all of her items, comes up front, and, you know, the cashier looks at her and says, for your great-grandchildren? Oh, no. For your grandchildren? Oh, no. And then she just kind of opens her coat, and they go, oh, no. 89 years old. Abraham, 99 years old. And yet God said, if you'll just let me use you, be an instrument of my righteousness, and I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. I've got your back, Abram. You just need to do what I've asked you to do. And because of that, he said, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, which is why we're here today. And so, as we bring our lesson to a close, the simple question is, have you made yourself available to God? That's all God wants. God, God's not looking at us saying, I need you to do something great. Now, I admit, if God came to me in June right now and said, y'all need to have another child, I'd go, whew. You know, Lord, we're going to have to have a conversation on that one. You know, I'd probably fall down laughing and June would fall down crying. But anyway, that's beside the point. You know, but have we made ourselves available to God? You know, Paul says we're ambassadors of Christ as though God, God uses us. He's making his appeal through us. One of the most amazing things in Scripture. And then I love both the way Paul and John kind of talks about Abraham. First of all, Paul in Galatians 3 says, you know what God did? God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. When he said, all nations will be blessed through you, while Abraham may have not understood what, what was contained in that little expression, it was the entire narrative of God's plan to redeem mankind, especially in the sending of Jesus. Abraham would die. He'd live a long, full life. He would have many descendants, many nations came from him. But he would die. And I don't know if you ever wondered what happened after he died. And one of the simplest, most beautiful insights is found in John's gospel. As John tells us that what happened was that Jesus told Abraham, here's my plan. And Abraham watched as time elapsed, looking forward to that day when the promise made to him so long ago would finally be fulfilled. And when you turn over to John's gospel, here's what Jesus himself said. Your father Abraham rejoiced. He rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And then I love this. And he saw it. And he was glad. I don't know if you ever thought about, not only were the angels rejoicing at the birth of the baby Jesus, but Abraham was rejoicing as well. Because God was fulfilling his promise he had made to him to bless the nations. And he's still doing it today. He's still blessing us through Jesus Christ. The seed of Abraham. And he offers to us an amazing opportunity to become children of God. Yes! But more than just children of God. Children of Abraham. Something I, don't, I know we don't think often about. But it's being children of the man of faith. And following in his footsteps. And if you've never done that, you have an opportunity to do that right now. If, if you have a need that we can help you with, come right now and let us help you. As together we stand and sing.